Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this Advocate Session episode of the Aquademia podcast, where we take 10 with the Responsible Seafood Advocate. I am joined, as usual, by the Advocate's editor, James Wright. How's it going, Jamie? Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me on again, Sean. Yeah, it's been a little while. We had a a little interruption uh, with the Boston Seafood Show, but we're back on track, and we're here to talk about what is going on with the advocate. So first of all, as we always do, let's see what's going on with you and what's, you know, what 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 did we miss in the advocate during our break? Yeah, the past uh, few weeks we've covered uh, a few notable stories. One um is the North Atlantic blue whiting fishery and how the coastal states, so the countries that fish this resource. So that's the UK, Norway, Iceland, Faroe Islands, Greenland, EU. All those different coastal states that harvest blue whiting, they just can't seem to come to a formal agreement about how the fishery is to be allocated. This lack of any management mechanism is why they lost the MSC certification a few years ago. And the fishery is now in what, what, what is the only one we know of is a f- political FIP or FIP. You've talked about that a lot yep, on yep. your show. So a fishery improvement project. And this is just a few years ago, and that's going to expire soon. Uh, the FIP was designed to give the buyers a little bit of leverage, but they also to allow them to continue buying. So now these, you have these major feed companies who buy virtually all of it, uh, Cargill, Scredding, Biomar. They're saying now, if you can't figure this out, can't follow the science, then we're walking. Um, the FIP ends next year. It's time to get something long-term on the books, they're saying. And you know, it's a great example of using marketplace power to influence policy. This one's really complicated because there's a lot more than just fish at stake. So there's, you know, fisheries are part of a larger international trade agreements. Uh, there's other geopolitical forces at play there in that region of the world. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. The solution to this particular issue in a vacuum maybe is pretty simple. Come to an agreement and there's plenty of fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thing. Like the, fip, the fishery itself is not necessarily struggling biologically. It's just there's no... Which is not necessarily something that we're all familiar with. Usually the opposite. <laughs> yeah, the, usually the reason for a FIP is because the, the fishery is struggling in some sustainability realm. You know, mm-hmm. like it's low recruitment or overfishing, something wrong with it. Yeah, so interesting article. We're going to link to all of these in the show notes as we always do. I'm excited to talk about the next one because it's pretty cool. Uh, you're talking about Whoosh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the we featured a U.S. company, maybe of the coolest. Business name ever, John. Whoosh. Whoosh. Is it Whoosh or is it Whoosh? I don't really know. But I think I, you have I, to get that <laughs> kind of like that extra puff of air behind it. Whoosh. I think it's Whoosh Innovations. <laughs> is They're using uh, pneumatic tubes for safe, stress-free transport of fish. And this is farmed or wild fish. Uh, this technology is in high demand now. It, it can be used on farms for harvests, for uh, by well boats, for medical treatments. It's also being used as like temporary fish ladders or passages uh, on key rivers, we you know we write about stress all the time. You know, I'm constantly talking about it on your program here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just one more way in which fish handlers are taking greater care of the fish with pretty clear benefits. So that's really cool. Yeah, and we all know that you know it's it's pretty well proven that less stress, especially you know right before harvest and stuff, does result in a better overall product afterwards. So yeah, there's just so much incentive to make sure that you reduce that stress as much as possible. All right, we got one more to look at. Yeah, and the last one is um, from Lisa, my associate editor, Lisa Jackson. She explored some new welfare technology, again, 
fishbowl. Here we are again. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nofema scientists are are using hyperspectral cameras to assess fish welfare. Hyperspectral cameras were developed by NASA in the seventies uh, for satellites, so they can see a wider range of light than you know typical cameras. Uh, instead of reading three channels, you know, red, green, blue, these read one hundred and eighty six. So there's more information. There's more distinct colors. The result. Uh, is a non-invasive technique that can detect blood and meat. It can determine the sex of the European flat oyster at an early life stage. It can measure fat in the liver and the viscera or the guts of the fish. Uh, and these are key indicators of health. So this technology can help growers dial in their feeds to increase efficiency. Uh, one of the sources told us technology for farm salmon is unparalleled. But even so, there's still a poor understanding of welfare. So, you know, the hope is tools like this will help close that gap. Yeah, it's always cool to see kind of what new technologies they're developing to keep track of what's going on under the water. It's pretty well. Norway is a real leader in that. I mean, especially like just monitoring activity, but health too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. So as we said before, all of the links for those articles are going to be in the show notes and you can check those out and make sure that you explore the rest of the stuff that's on The Advocate as well when you're there. What do we got coming up on deck? Sure. So yeah, next week's story is a big one. Um, it dives into the North Atlantic right whale saga, for lack of a better word, and how this endangered species has been on, you know, a bit of a collision course with fixed gear fisheries or trap fisheries like the uh, American lobster and snow crab in the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil too much about it. I'd rather you read it next week. I will say, and you know this, I've said it a million times, I'm a Mainer, the lobster industry, even if you're not in it, it means something to you as a Mainer, or it should. And the situation there is frustrating. Uh, Maine has a really well-regulated fishery. It's got stewardship at its core, but there's also this endangered species that inhabits the region. And, you know, the fisheries work really hard to avoid interacting with it. Mm-hmm. And, and despite really good scores in that area, recent litigation has made it seem like their fishing techniques, namely the the equipment, which uses ropes that attach traps to buoys, put these animals at greater risk. While whales can get in- entangled in fishing gear, there's simply not a lot of evidence of it. But with just 340 animals remaining, there's heightened awareness and attention. So this story really just looks at the whale, its history, the challenges that it's facing biologically in terms of like climate change, the lower life expectancy. Uh, there's a lack of food resources, mm-hmm. so they're on the move. And then, of course, the litigation that led to the certification and ratings changes for the fishery, and of course, how the, you know, the American lobster and snow crab fisheries factor into the whale's future. Uh, this article is by our collaborator Emily D'Souza. She's a gives a really good overview of the situation. You know, I get asked a lot uh, about this a lot, just casually. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm yep. a, a mainer, but uh, people know I cover this industry, so I get asked. I think this story would be a really good resource for anyone who has questions. Yeah, about it's pretty pretty all encompassing, and this is something that I've been talking about even back in the days when I was an educator at the New England Aquarium. It's something that we talked about all the time. So, and Emily was a guest on our show just a couple episodes ago, so I'm sure our listeners are going to be familiar with who she is as well. And if you want more information about her, go back and check out our episode with her about social media and the seafood industry. All right, let's go hit the Wayback Machine. And uh, we're going to do something a little different this week, right? Well, a little bit. You know, well, this week, I'm just tying in something that happened this week. We found a, a new study from the aquarium, aquarium of the Pacific. They found that highlighting 
aquaculture's positive environmental impacts can, in fact, change consumers' minds or, uh, in their words, turn naysayers into supporters. So they focused on you know, people residing in the western and northeastern coastal states of the U.S. So those are the folks that would be like living with, a, with an expanded marine aquaculture industry nearby if, if it was to expand. They found that the economic benefits, say like, you know, job creation, that's not the most compelling reason for them to like accept or support mm-hmm. a growing industry. But instead it was those, you know, those ecosystem services, so to speak, uh, shellfish and seaweed farming, you know, having a well-managed and environment, environmentally friendly form of food production that's a complement to wild fisheries and an alternative to land-based foods, those were seen as desirable traits. But, it, you know, it really got me thinking about a story from shockingly six years ago <laughs> involving uh, research from the University of California, Santa Barbara, one of our favorite guests on the show, mm-hmm. uh, scientist, our hero, <laughs> Holly Froelich, PhD. <laughs> our hero, my inspiration. <laughs> yeah, so their, their we're, we're fan was, favorite. Their report was a bit headier. Uh, you know, the, back then, it used some fancier vocabulary, too. The title of it was Public Perceptions of Aquaculture evaluating spatio-temporal patterns of sentiment around the world. I'll just take you back about this study. This collaborative goal of this, of this work was to determine whether, you know, individuals, communities, governments are supportive of offshore aquaculture. Because, you know, in, in, in their words, accurate representation and communication of real risks versus misconceptions is critical to constructive and informed dialogue. You know, the word offshore really kind of maybe has some negative connotations with people, uh, linkages to oil drilling and you know, maybe the memory of the uh, Deepwater Horizon mm-hmm. uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico is still fresh in people's minds then. The work that Holly did here is relevant for us, media people too. What she and her team were ultimately analyzing were news reports. They were looked at 1,600 English language media reports, newspaper stories, uh, and then extrapolated what the sentiment was of each article, positive, neutral, negative, but positive trends were noted. And this is six years ago. I think we probably couldn't do that. If we did this again, I bet you it would be an even yeah. further uh, yeah, I would growth think so. in that area. Uh, so in, in Holly's words, she, she wrote, she said to me when I did the story was how an article is framed ultimately influences the way a reader analyzes it. And it definitely sounds like something she would say. Yeah, truer words were never <laughs> spoken. <laughs> so this all really gets back to communication, messaging, storytelling, aquaculture, you know, has a very compelling story to tell as we know. uh, But, you know, from this research, it looks like we know what the lead should be. (laughs) And that's that responsible aquaculture can be a net benefit to the environment. Yeah. All right. So like we said, all of these articles are available. Well, the right whale one is not available yet as of this recording, but all the articles. It'll be up on Monday. Yeah. So it'll be up soon. Uh, But all of the articles that we do mention in here will be linked in the show notes so you can make sure you check those out, read the ones you like, and make sure that you reach out to either us here on the podcast or to Jamie directly uh, with any comments or questions that you have. And uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you.